This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Welcome to the Hero Academy Podcast, the place where we can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes. I believe that frontline heroes such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those who have chosen to serve society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here you will learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their passion. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing. Things you can do to make extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you will learn from people like you who are working full time, but still found time to create a course, grow a big team or a large audience or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories and how they overcame burnout. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. I'm your host, David Diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hero Academy podcast. This week's episode, we have Jake Mitchell from Flight of Thought podcast. Thank you very much for being my guest. I very, very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem, brother. So um, if you could just introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do and a little bit of your history. Sure. So um, um, what I do on, on the side right now is I do have a, the Flay of Thoughts podcast. And um, what brought me to it is um, I've been in the healthcare field um, for about 10 years now. I started out as a paramedic, uh, did that for about four or five years, and then um, transitioned into the addictions and mental health field and kind of expanded and brought those skills into there. So two jobs I kind of work in now is uh, one is I'm a clinical case manager with a, a specialized community mental health team. So I get to really work with a lot of professionals there with some really high needs um, clients, um, keeping them away from, you know, the need of hospitals and, and things like that. And then the other job <laughs> um, where it's basically very similar to being a paramedic is being a harm reduction worker in a safe injection site. Um, one of the busiest ones in our city where, we're responding sometimes to like four to five overdoses in an eight hour shift. Oh um, my God. <laughs> it can get quite busy. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's where I'm at right now. And I also, as a, uh, something I do on the side is I teach first aid and CPR. And I think one thing I like to tell first responders to try to do if they can is do some of that on the side if you're looking for some side money, cause it's actually pretty helpful sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so you were paramedic for four and a half five to five years. You said yeah so yeah so i did I had four years in nova scotia and then about a year on the kind of non-emergency sort of event stuff in toronto and then transitioned into the addictions and mental health field um, uh, when I you might go back yeah <laughs> it's hard to give it up everyone that does it they love it they love the runs uh, um was that all paid or was it all volunteer all paid um in canada with paramedicine it is all 
regulated and uh, paid. Firefighting is a little different. You know, there's a lot of volunteer services and they're really well trained. Um, and it's just kind of, you know, it's good. It's good to have that as well as an option. Um, but in Canada, they're a lot more regulated on a more national, almost well, provincial standard technically. Um, so, yeah. So I was listening to uh, quite a few episodes of Flight of Thought podcast, and um, I heard you talking about decriminalization and marijuana. I think Toronto was like one of the first cities where it was decriminalized completely, right? Yeah. So it's it's funny how this kind of works out too. And I hope people listening to know that when we talk about this, we're not we're not glorifying drug use or anything. It's it's just kind of looking at it differently, right? Um, and, and the idea that with cannabis, um, it, it, it's strange for first responders because, first of all, it's not for everybody. And I think it's fair to say that it's one of those yep. things that you got to know what's for you and what's not for you. <laughs> um, but for people who use it medically, you know, with the guidance of a healthcare provider, like a, a doctor, or a cannabis specialist who it works for them. It's nice to not have that stigma um, to be able to try it out and see if it works for you. Um, and then if not have like a doctor supervising to say, you know, let's, it's not for you. Let's stop and, you know, help you do that. So, uh, and also with our safe injection sites, we're seeing, um, that of course the drugs are still illegal, but in the site itself, um, they're allowed to have personal possession. Now they're not allowed to deal in the site. Um, people aren't allowed to do anything illegal in the site. All they're allowed to really do is use the substance in front of us. So that if they overdose, we can respond to them. And we also are giving them counseling and case management to try and find out why they're stuck using. Oftentimes it's being homeless with a whole lot of other issues and then trying to slowly bite away at those issues until they can finally get to a place where they can move away from the addiction. So it's quite a process. So, so I do see drug use as a medical, as a medical issue. I don't see it necessarily as a criminal thing. You know, unless they unless they hurt someone else. Oh, yeah. And so let's be honest there, too. There's times where drug use is tied to crime. <laughs> yep. And that's for sure. Um, yep. But I like how you say it best. The user, the use itself, if it's not hurting anyone, it's usually a medical problem we can look at it as or a mental health problem, too. When you said safe injection site, it, it didn't click for me right away until uh, until you started describing it. And I'm like, wow, that's a that's a really wild idea. It's very. I don't know if America is ready for that yet. Do they have anything like that in the U.S.? Do you know? New York, New York, I think, and there may be a couple other places, but I know New York did the first one they've started. And in their first day, I think they reversed like 11 overdoses, <laughs> something like that. Um, wow. And so and the cool part about it, too, is we actually build the liaison um a liaison ship. I hope it's the right word. I'm tired today. <laughs> um, worked a very busy shift yesterday. <laughs> um, what hours between- did you work? Oh, uh, it wasn't 12. Luckily, it was between 12 and 8, 12 okay. uh, p.m. to 8 p.m., but very busy in downtown Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, sorry, what was you saying? You were saying, uh, talking about liaison ship. Yeah, we build a really good liaison ship between, you know, paramedics, police, um, even firefighters because they respond to some of the calls, too. So we try to kind of be the bridge between some of the clients who may not have the best relationship with first responders just due to the nature of the system and high populations. Um, and we kind of build that up and we also help them 
learn to trust, you know, if someone's a drug user, it's hard for them at face value to trust a police officer and vice versa because there's all this kind of murky territory. But what we see in the community level, when the police officers who work in that area, they know everybody. So you get to build a trust and rapport in a cool way. And with our sites, there's this kind of, uh, we get to drop the kind of, what's what I'm looking for, the kind of war it seems like between police and drug users and they see each other as like we're in this together and we're just trying to figure it out and a lot more police officers have policies in place to be able to not arrest somebody for personal possession they have a good conversation with them and if they really know okay this person's homeless they have the smallest amount of this drug that they're just going to use tonight <sighs> putting them in jail for that's not helpful right now but having a conversation with them and seeing if i can connect them with a social worker or something that seems to be better off. So as, as a street cop, I had two schools of thought about small use drugs. So there, there's the one school of thought. There's the one hand where it's like, hey, it's a small amount. And, you know, like you said, they're homeless. Who, who are they harming? But then there's the other school of thought. Like, you don't know what kind of crimes this person might commit if they need to get high again. So... Um, if you put them in jail, then maybe they say, you know what, this is the last time I'm going to spend the night in jail because I've had people say, thank you for arresting me because that last arrest was the one that changed my life and I decided to go straight. So it, it's a tough spot. You know, it's like, you don't know which school of thought is, um, you know, when I was younger, I was all about. Lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. <laughs> it's part but of what your training gives us, too. Even as paramedics, you're taught drug use is all just this horrible thing, and people who are doing it are just bad people. <laughs> no, I've met I've met a lot of users who were decent people, and you could yeah. tell like they had decent hearts, and they weren't out to hurt anyone at all. They just had a they had an addiction problem, and it was something you know psychological, it was something medical that. I didn't think the criminal justice system necessarily could could fix, you know. And I think that you said something really interesting, too. It is murky because there are times where I've had clients say to me, hey, uh, you know, going to jail is where I got clean, <laughs> you know, where, you know, not to say that, you know, people want to just, you know, to just go try out jail <laughs> to get clean or anything. But, you know, it's it no, is but sometimes murky, they get it, sometimes they get fed up with. Yep just going yep. through the system, going to court and yep. being on probation. Sometimes they just get fed up with being in the system and they, they finally decide this life is not for me. And that's if they're there in that journey. So that's a good point too. So where I usually meet my clients, they're not quite there in that journey. They're there at that point where they're just, they're barely surviving each day. And like that seeking of that next hit is like pain relief on, on a level that we're not quite understanding of. Like uh, yep. unless you have, severe cancer or something yeah. um, and that's very different I think that's where we need the most I think attention um, to try and divert people from spiraling more and more and I think part of it too is we try to separate the users from the dealers and that's something interesting that we're doing in Canada with safe supply is we're starting to prescribe um, like Dilaudid which is a version of morphine that uh, gets people away from having to buy street fentanyl and it's kind of like taking them back through the process that originally got them addicted in the first place was usually getting us prescribed a painkiller. So now what we're simply saying is, okay, how about we try to prescribe you it again to get you back and away from the dealers 
So they stop getting all that money and they just don't have the incentive to keep bringing this in here. And then you can start to cut down on that. And that's at least being monitored by a physician who knows why you're being prescribed it. Because what happened a lot of the times is the doctors, as soon as they saw that someone had an addiction, they would take it away from them instead of, because there just wasn't that many resources to try and divert people. So, yeah. I, I heard recently someone told me that, uh, Rehab is only good for meeting new dealers. <laughs> so someone, a, an addict told me that very, very recently, and I don't remember who it was or what the context was, but I remember someone saying that uh, everyone knows that you just meet new dealers in rehab. Oh, I know who it was. It was a guy who had gotten a DWI, and he didn't want to go to the local hospital. He paid thousands of dollars to go out west and uh, put himself through his own treatment. And he said, uh, everyone knows on Long Island that uh, or pretty much every rehab, you just go and you meet new dealers. Because I, I don't know what they do in Toronto and in Canada, but a lot of times dealers get caught with small amounts of drugs and they say it's for personal use mm -hmm. and the judges give them rehab instead mm -hmm. of jail. So... So they're mixed amongst people who really have addiction, and it, it's like a fresh supply of clients, you know. And, and not to mention the fact there's other people in their recovery that they're not quite as ready to change as maybe you would be. And they're now potentially influencing you to fall back. And the problem is when we're struggling as humans, it's painful to watch somebody progress past us, especially in something as painful as an addiction struggle that yep. takes a lot of work. So and it doesn't mean that, oh, we're trying to sabotage the person, but we don't want to suffer alone. Like the whole cliche that misery loves company, it's it's really profound. Like people hate being alone in their, in their suffering. Um, so that's a good point. I think we do see that rehab on like a, a first run basis has a low success rate because there's so many factors. So I think it works really well for people who have their biology set up, like they're not in chronic pain all the time. They're, you know, they have their, if they have diabetes or some medical conditions, they're being addressed on a level, then they can start working on the, the thinking processes, you know, the way the mind's working and try to gain more control over that. And then the social connections, we need to start getting more of that. That's what I see a lot of in my uh, community mental health work is most of my clients who deteriorate and struggle and end up sometimes having to have the police called because they're in crisis or paramedics, it's they do not have social connection. So the biopsychosocial model is really helpful. And then there's something about beyond that, which is meaning. And that's what the rest of us all need once we've accomplished you know, those basic needs. Maslow's, Maslow's law, have you heard yeah. of Maslow? Yeah. Yep, I love that. Um, tell us about the podcast. Sure. Yeah, so I I started it because uh, transitioning, like right at the end of the paramedic kind of career where I was working, um, I wanted to kind of talk more about mental health with other people and kind of learn more about it and, and do it kind of, um, I want to do it in a way that people can kind of watch my journey in learning about it and also talk about things that people can't talk about on like major platforms so just very evidence-based non-judgmental discussion um and and there's a couple episodes that i'd have removed because the people that i had on talking about some of their experiences had reached out saying you know i've been through a, a change in my journey and i don't want that side of me shared so i've 
taken a couple episodes off, <laughs> but okay. um, my my goal was to basically just share as many stories as I can with people um, from things I've observed, you know, through this strange career path from paramedicine into the mental health field, um, and even talking about the psychedelic um, therapies in, in cannabis just as an alternate um, idea and, and kind of sharing it in a way that's evidence-based and harm reductive. So harm reduction is a big part of my podcast. So resiliency and harm reduction. Um, being able to find out what helps us become resilient. And then if we are in a dangerous lifestyle, whether it's a stressful job or maybe engaging in some type of a substance or even like, um, you know, self-care or working out, we have to make sure we don't hurt ourselves. So, um, yeah, being able to be gentle with ourselves and learn. Do you have a favorite? I I know you do interview style. Uh, Do you have one that stands out in your mind that like uh like wow that was a really good good conversation good that was a good guest yeah so there's there's probably a couple that kind of tie up (laughs) um one of them was um a filmmaker named sebastian claremont who does a lot of like exploratory artistic film work and we just talked a lot about death and altered states of consciousness and that the things that us human beings were usually very uncomfortable and terrified of, but things that we in healthcare and as first responders, we see a lot of at face value. And um, because Sebastian hasn't been a first responder or healthcare worker, but seen all this stuff from the psychedelic and artistic perspective, we're able to kind of meet in the middle and talk about it. And I think that was, that's also important is the states that we enter in stress and end of life and, you know, even police officers who are in a life or death situation, arguably that's a psychedelic experience just due to the amount of chemicals being released in the brain. So when I say psychedelic, I don't just mean the drugs, but just kind of like those really surreal states that are almost altered states. That makes sense. It does. It does. Um, And how, when did you start the podcast? I think it was two or so years ago, around 2018, just when I moved back from Nova Scotia to Toronto um, and it was something just to kind of keep my passion up because I was really not sure exactly what I wanted to do at the time. If I'm going to be back into the ambulance or try to move forward in the crisis type of a field. Um, so, yeah, it was my way to kind of just explore that and, and do something meaningful and try to reach some people who might need some support, um, who might be able to listen to the episodes and just get some comfort in knowing people are out there trying to explore this stuff and find some joy in the struggles in life. <laughs> How'd you come up with the title? Ah, it's the, uh, it's kind of like something, it's a a symptom we, we attribute to bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but we all have it when we're excited about something or passionate and it's flight of thoughts or tangential speak. So we get so excited. We're talking about one thing. Then maybe you say something that, oh, it takes us down that path. But Uh that feeling we have that, that passion we share in the conversation, that's exciting. I think that's a, a big joy of life in the human experience. So I like to name that the podcast flight of thoughts. <laughs> I, I had that uh, feeling recently when I was on a coaching call and I was sharing some of the different books that I um, like I was sharing. I, I have three, three books over there right now that I shared on, on another call. Um, and I was just getting so excited as I was flipping through the books, showing some of the things that I highlighted and I was like, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I just get, you know, so excited when I talk about some of this stuff, you know, where, where do you see your career going? Like, where would you like it to go? Cause you're still pretty young. I can 
just tell. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I'm 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 almost thirty, so I'm still in my twenties. Um, but that's awesome. I would love I would love to see either going into the mobile crisis um, unit, working with you know a police service, or what would be even better, and I'd love to see is like a mental health like crisis medic, you know. Yeah. Um, where it's it's because they have crisis nurses, which is great, but having like a paramedic that's assigned to mental health calls and case management, um, which is sort of similar to what I'm doing now, but I do love it more in the emergency role. So, have you considered becoming? Have you considered becoming like a crisis nurse? Nurse, like that's to- another option, but it's just a little bit of a longer journey um, mm-hmm. to do like the mobile crisis with the police, like just just like a social worker with the police. It's a bit of a shorter journey. I'm already halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes, and what that I'm makes doing sense. Now at the, yep. And what I'm doing at the safe injection sites, it's like the same role. It's just the pay is not there because it's so new and, and underfunded because it's very nonprofit. Um, if I'm doing it in a health center, it's one thing. But doing it in the place I'm doing it, um, it's not quite a career um, wage. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another part of it. Maybe they'll pay us more to do that work and then I'll just you know, run one of those sites one day. <laughs> Do you have any stories that stick out in your mind from your days as a paramedic? Um, For sure. And I mean, there's crossover just into what I'm doing now because it's very similar emergency response. But um, I guess a good way to help people listening get more out of this too is what do you, is there kind of like a category we can talk about with that? Because it's such, first responders, we have so many things we deal with. <laughs> Like, is there anything specific that you you want me to kind of explore there? Because I do. Have well, a lot. I never, <laughs> I, I never ask people about their worst day on the job because mm. why, why would I ask you to relive that? <laughs> it just doesn't make right. sense to me. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but I do ask: Do you do you have any funny moments that you remember, like or like crazy or wild stories? Yeah, um, a couple, I, I guess, like that are really intense. Um, one of the one of the ones that that was great is that um i'm just trying to think about which ones to you know it's funny when you start to think the ones that come to my mind right away are ones i'm like i probably shouldn't share those just because the person (laughs) in the story wouldn't want me to um like i'm gonna have to think of it this is what i mean like i'm 10 years now and being busy in the field i've been to quite a few experiences oh i have a, a kind of a funny one actually this happened at the injection site um I work at currently actually so at the peak of of uh, the surge in covid cases in the last wave we had um we're exhausted <laughs> we're tired and what happens a lot um recently because um somehow with the pandemic with you know the opioid crisis everything coming to a head the fentanyl has gotten super strong so we're constantly running out to overdoses on the street as well like in the alleyways around our site because sometimes yep. there's no ambulance available so the community members yell for us to go, so we go. Um, and this one particular day was so chaotic. Um, a new person who's brand new, um, I, I forgive them for this. <laughs> they left our emergency bag that has all our oxygen, our emergency like life-saving equipment in it, by the front door. And their thought process was, I can just grab that quick and head out. But what you forget when you're working with a population of people who are surviving homeless in Toronto is they see a bag that looks like it has things in it and you're living a ho- on the street that night in the cold. You're thinking I might need something in that bag uh-huh. and Hey, that's human nature, right? So 
I get called to an overdose upstairs in the housing complex. And this is scary because this is upstairs in an apartment. Whole host of other dangers up there. So I run. I can't find the bag. I say, where's the bag? They say, I left it at the front door. I said, shit, <laughs> it's gone. Okay, it's stolen. So the nurse that I'm working with just hands me a loaded Narcan syringe and says, good luck. <laughs> so anyone who doesn't understand what an overdose typically is, is someone's not breathing usually. And you have to breathe for them with high concentration oxygen. And you do not, you're not doing mouth to mouth in a pandemic. And I'm not no. doing mouth to mouth as a first responder <laughs> ever. I'm sorry. No. That's why we have these this equipment. <laughs> so um, I run up there. I just grabbed a couple Narcan packs and um, I get up and um, the doors open at the elevator and they're panicking the staff upstairs and the guy's blue. So he needs everything. <laughs> All I have is Narcan. Um, he's full of vomit. So I turn him over. Uh. We start trying to clear his airway. I hit him with Narcan once. They said they've already hit him once 10 minutes ago. It didn't work. I'm like, he's been this way for 10 minutes. So I give him more Narcan. I'm like, we just have to bring him out now. There's no waiting to try and prevent withdrawal. We just have to give him more until he wakes up. I have nothing. Um, all I can do is if his pulse stops is start chest compressions. And his friend who was there with him said, I told him to only do half of that shot. And he did the whole thing. And she said, last time we gave him Narcan, he got pissed. He usually gets violent when he gets Narcan. Oh, and great. I look and there's a <laughs> massive carving knife on the table, like on the dining table. And it's like, I don't, I don't know if it's like a bread carving knife, this massive uh -huh. serrated knife. <laughs> and right then he starts to wake up. So I grab this knife. And I just throw it behind a microwave and just <laughs> locks and falls behind. He's <laughs> like, what the fuck? And just starts puking, puking, puking. Um, and then we say to him, I'm sorry, someone stole our emergency bag. We normally wouldn't have given you that much Narcan, but you were blue and you were dying. And he just said, oh, damn it. Well, thank you guys. And the funny part was that the friend had to actually videotape him while she gave him the first dose of Narcan saying, I'm proving to you, you need this. Okay. You can't be mad at me after. <laughs> wow. So she showed me the video and I could see in the video, he was definitely about to die. So she saved his life. She was the one who gave him that first dose that kept him alive till I got there. Um, and then well, luckily the right then the firefighters walk in and, and they can start helping. <laughs> so you, you, you dealing with, uh, nurses, firemen and police on a regular yep. basis. That's a pretty team. cool. Yeah. That's pretty oh, cool. Especially the outdoor ones. The police will get there first a lot of the time and they're learning more and more how to respond to like overdoses and such. And you know, we all, what they'll usually do is they see us running with our emergency bag. They know who we are now. They go, Oh, they're, they're the harm reduction workers. They'll kind of keep the scene safe for us while we set up and resuscitate the person. Then the paramedics will show up with the firefighters, whoever's there first. Um, and then we hand over care and then they take them to the hospital. Or here's the coolest part a lot of people don't know. If we resuscitate them within quick enough time, they usually can get up and walk back to the site with us. And then we monitor them instead. They don't have to go to the hospital. And oh, that wow. ambulance can go back out and do another call. So we prevent hundreds of ambulance calls and um, hospital responses that people don't need. Uh, you said um, something about people being resuscitated in, um, in the facility. What's the most number of times that you've seen someone uh, brought back to life from Narcan? The same person. Or, or do you mean the same person or like? Yeah, they, um, what's the most number of times that you've ever seen someone, yeah, the sa same individual brought back to life? Oof. So there's seen and then there's the times that I wasn't there. Right. So or, or heard. Um, yeah. Heard of. Yeah. So there's there's there are some people who it's almost every other day or something. 
um, there are some people who walk in and we know because you forget too. it's our population isn't just 20, 30 year olds who are healthy and just, you know, kicking it. Um, <laughs> a lot of these people are, you know, geriatric or middle aged yeah. and yeah. they have a lot of health conditions. Um, so there's certain ones that walk in and I, I already know that I'm going to have to breathe for them. So I'll get the oxygen ready and I'll, I'll we'll have a conversation. So another thing we do is we talk about harm reduction. We'll talk about like, you know, cutting the dose down, you know, things like that. Um, and then if they overdose and we're expecting it, then we just we're back into it and we know how. Um, typically people don't in the same day because what they'll do is they'll test their batch first. That first dose is usually a tester. And if they overdose, they will go half of it usually or like a lot less. Um, but I have seen some people um, like three, four times <laughs> in a row. Um, God bless not you. Not in the same God day, you, but man. like, yeah. Well, God, and God, look, you God see bless it. you because cause I was going to say everyone that works in harm reduction they have to they have to actually care because you yeah. can't you can't have someone that's burnt out and and just doesn't give a shit anymore working in a place like that because you have a lot of people who have the life on the line hmm. and they're they're counting on you to, to to bring them back oh and especially when people come back and they know they're relapsing and they felt hard and they've been off of it for maybe a month or a few months and they're coming in there and they're saying, look, I, I'm doing my first dose in three months. Like I'm relapsed and I'm terrified, but I'm glad I can come here and I'm not alone in my apartment or some hotel room or alleyway doing this. And it's a bizarre idea to me. It is. Yeah. It's challenging. It really is challenging. <laughs> It challenges it's me too. Like there are times where I do ask the person, like I'm, t I'm tired and I'm like, I just wish you can get better. And it's just, uh, we don't have the answers for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't know what the right answer is. Um, no. <laughs> because obviously putting hundreds and hundreds of people in jail, uh, it's never worked in the past. <laughs> and it, it, I don't know if having a safe, I don't know if legalizing it is the right answer either because then you have people um, maybe trying it that wouldn't have tried it because it's not – because it's, now it's legal. So I, I don't know what the right answer is. There's so many different aspects to it. Well, the decriminalization luckily is a middle ground where it's not quite legal. You know, you can't go to the store and buy, you know, a pack of fentanyl or crystal meth. <laughs> it's that if caught with though you're diverted into mental health and something else instead of, you know, jail. But then of course there's the idea of, are you caught within a crime with it? Are you selling it? Are you um, harming somebody while under the influence, which goes the same way with alcohol, right? And, and yeah. cannabis yep. and things that are legal. Yeah. Um, that's the answer I think to start um, and really separating the people who are contributing to criminally from the people who are just trying to get off of it. Cause the other part too is people don't, love being addicted to fentanyl it's a horrible life and it's a demon leads them there yes yes and what leads them there is complicated and once they're there they want out and i haven't met a client who looks at me and goes oh i can't wait to just live the rest of my life doing this some have said i'm not ready to quit that's different but they know that that's not what they want to be living like um and we can get into the different, uh, not that we have, like, it would take hours, but we can get into the different stories of what leads people to fentanyl addiction, too. But <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's I've, traumatizing. I've always, <laughs> I've always asked people, you know, why they started. And usually, typically, it was pills. Uh, yep. You know, it was 
pain pills. That's typically the answer. And, um, you know, obviously everyone has their own sad story, but, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. What's your, what's your thoughts on legalization of all drugs, even, even the hard drugs? What's your thoughts? The only thing I, I want to say right off the bat there is that when it comes to the legalization part, there's a lot of parts of that policy that I'm not as familiar with of what that would look like. And I want to be honest with that. I think there's a balance between legalization and decriminalization. And it's fine to classify certain drugs as mostly a medical need, like fentanyl. You want that available in hospitals. That's fine because <laughs> if you have a bro or in the ambulance, if you have a broken hip, you want some fentanyl real quick. Yeah. But the idea of it, like you said, is can you go and just find that on the street, knowing how addictive that is? And Chris, at right, another at, one. at Rite Aid or Walgreens, your yeah. local, you know, CVS. And there's the difference there with cannabis and alcohol. You can have a drink, you can maybe smoke a joint, and it's not like you're going to be now stuck in a cycle for life. Right. Versus crystal meth. We know what that's doing to the brain and the dopamine receptors on yes. a level that we're not able to comprehend, like handle as humans. And same with fentanyl. So I agree that legalization at this point, I don't know if we'd be prepared to know what that looks like. But to decriminalize takes it away from the dealers. And maybe it puts it into a regulatory body where you get a prescription that. You know, you wouldn't just you. It's not like you can go walk in now and say, "Hey, I'm struggling with post-traumatic stress. Give me opioid prescription for it." They go, "No, no, no. This is for someone who's addicted to to fentanyl or opioids. We can't prescribe it to you for your hip." And right. we still care and and go through precautions on prescribing opiates to people with chronic pain. But for someone with addiction, we we divert to maybe giving them safe supply. And we've seen firsthand a lot of my clients who've been given that opportunity have come off of the street drugs completely. And they're no longer buying drugs. Either. They're no longer a criminal now. Now they're just someone struggling with their addiction and they can get better. So um, I just want to honor your time and thank you for coming on the show. I just want to ask you five more, you know, very quick questions. Um, mm -hmm. I always hit people with the hardest one is you, what's your definition of a hero? Because for me, it's uh, it's the people that are out there doing the work of saving lives and making that personal sacrifice uh, the nurses, the police officers, the firemen, and the military. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good definition, and that's a that's a way to a lot of people can start. And I think another way to look at it is people who go above and beyond their comfort to help other people. I think that's a definition I like, like the Good Samaritan story, where the Good like Samaritan actor you hear of, where it comes from, like in Samaria, yes. it's dangerous road, and the man who stops to help the wounded person, knowing so full well. They should not be stopping on this dangerous road. So that's why I like, because even people who, and you may, you for sure have seen this, the people who are their first aiders, not the first responders, yes. but that person who pulled over, who does not know what the hell they're doing, that got out of their car to help that person who was struck. Because they just have, they have, they have a good heart. That's another hero. Or parents, you know, right now during this pandemic, trying to figure out school closures and all that crap, and they're not ready for it. You know, that's another version of a hero, too. So I think there's spectrums of heroes, right? <laughs> and then there's the F person, like you said, like that firefighter or cop who runs into danger on a daily basis. And that's another level of hero, too. <laughs> I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, how do you de-stress? Hmm. So I, I like to have a menu of items. I have I'll just quickly show you this. <laughs> I started making it the other day. 
And I, I start I do this for my clients to show them that they should be doing this. And just in general, it's kind of like a map of different areas of well being. It might be mirrored on the camera, but it's um your bio your biological stuff you can do. So healthy eating, good sleep, working out, you know, yoga, whatever it is that you like to do to, to physically decompress. I have a list of psychological, like mental decompression to do list of social things, things that I know that I need to do socially that help me stay grounded. And then finally, emotional and spiritual things. So whether that's, you know, playing guitar, um, you know, um, playing with my dog, laugh, laughing at a movie, crying if you can cry at something that makes you cry, you know, things like What's that. What's some of your uh, psychological um, de-stressors that you have on that list? I'm curious. Learning things like studying. Um, uh, which is not for everyone. So I think for some people, remember, you're like, studying, that's work. Um, but when I do, like for me, it's studying something I'm passionate about. Um, playing music and learning a song is always good. Um, no, I can and, see that because yeah. there's two things that I want to learn that I'm very passionate about right now. And um, what, dancing will have to come after I retire. So that's that's one thing. I, I want to learn <laughs> yep. a lot of different forms of dance, you know, nice. like salsa and, uh, you know, and to dance to reggae dance hall and, and hip hop dance. I want to learn a lot of different styles. Um, and then the other thing is learning Spanish, which I think I'm going to start this year with uh, with a tutor like over Zoom where we nice. have like a one hour conversation or half hour to, to an hour conversation. Just um and you can, they're not that expensive either, but I, I definitely could see learning something as being a psychological distressor. Yeah. And mindfulness too, just general practice of mindfulness, body scanning, you know, paying attention to how your brain's working moment to moment. That's really helpful too. Um, you seem pretty, pretty driven. W would you consider like coaching other people your age um, around some of the things that you've learned? Yeah, and I, I, I do feel I want to build up to that a bit more. Um, I'm at a point right now where I'm still kind of building the career part in my life, but I'm almost at that point where I almost, I do want to do that. Um, because just based on that list, <laughs> yeah, yeah, de definitely. The, the podcast and just that list that you have, I think uh, you have a lot to offer for people. Thank you. Um, what's your strongest ability? This is my second to last question for you. What's your best ability? What's your what's your power to, today? To know where I fit in uh, in chaos. I know where my role fits in a stressful situation, and I know how to make that role uh, as valuable as possible to get the best outcome, um, and to fit in with that team too. That's that's good. And just for fun, if you had a comic superpower, what would it be and why? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> the ability to just connect with someone's inner child right in the moment and they can't stop you. Oh, uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> if, you can, if you can do that, you can just have truth, a truthful conversation, whether it's with someone you're arguing with, someone that you love. I've had it with clients where after an hour of talking to them, finally they break down crying and there you go. But I'd rather be able to just to go inner child mode and then it's just okay i'm scared i'm scared i don't know why i'm so angry okay it's okay we're in this together okay <laughs> that would be my power <laughs> that that's the first time i've ever heard that one that's pretty cool power <laughs> imagine you could do that with a criminal who's armed just say 
inner child mode, they drop the gun. They go, okay, I just need to be loved. (laughs) (laughs) Jake, thank you so much for coming on the Hero Academy. I really appreciate your time. It was really good talking with you. And uh, don't hang up because we're going to talk more after, okay? Awesome. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for having me. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.